1: Welcome to Far-Fetched Fables, part of the District of Wonders Network, featuring Starship Sofa,
2: Tales to Terrify, Crime City Central, and Protecting Project Pulp.
1: Everyone has a story in the District of Wonders. Come and find yours.
3: Good morning, good afternoon, good evening. Wherever you are, wherever you're listening from, this is Far-Fetched Fables. Welcome to show number 58. This week we have two new pieces of fantasy fiction to entertain your brain. First up is Lazy Tecos by Jeffrey A. Landis. Jeffrey is a scientist and a science fiction writer. As a scientist, he is a researcher, working at the NASA John Glenn Research Centre. As a writer, he won the Hugo Award for Best Short Story in 1992 for the story A Walk in the Sun, and again in 2003 for the story Falling on to Mars. He won the Nebula Award in 1990 for Ripples in the Dirac Sea. His novel, Mars Crossing, from Tor Books, won the Locus Award for the Best First Novel in 2001 his many science fiction stories have been translated into 22 languages, ranging from Chinese through to Swedish. His short story collection, Impact Parameter and Other Quantum Realities, published by Golden Griffin Books, was named as a notable book of 2001 by Publishers Weekly. His most recent book is the poetry collection Iron Angels. He lives in Berea, Ohio, with his wife, writer Mary A. Tertzillo, and his cats, Azrael and Teriel. More information can be found on his webpage, jeffreylandis.com. Narrating Lazy Tacos is Matthew Fredrickson. Matthew is in his mid-thirties, living in Memphis, Tennessee, with a rock-star plastic surgeon wife. He reads and writes and runs in his spare time, he loves to brew beer, and he'd love to make that his career. He will soon start the second season of his podcast, Freddy's Fan Fiction. You can find him on Twitter as Swami. Now sit back and relax while we bring you Lazy Tychos by Jeffrey A. Landis.
2: Once there was a boy named Tychos who lived on a heart farm. His parents were hard-working people. They grew new hearts for old men and tiny hearts for babies. They grew strong hearts to plant into young men who had crashed their air scooters and needed replacements. And they grew rugged working hearts for androids who were grown in a vat. But Tychos didn't want to live on the farm. He was lazy and wanted to do something that was more fun and less like work. One day, He slung his pack over his shoulder and told his parents he was off to seek his fortune in the big city. He hitched a ride with a passing businessman driving an old-fashioned one-wheeled gyro-car, and in a few minutes he was in the big city. In the big city he apprenticed himself to a robot builder, but his robots were built all askew and didn't want to work, but just sat and wrote poetry all day. No one would pay to buy a robot to sit around and write poetry, and so after a week he was let go. He apprenticed himself to a bioengineer, but he was too lazy to sculpt DNA and spent the day programming the micro-robots to play croquet with each other, using xenon atoms as balls. And then, when he was bored with that, he programmed them to gather all the atoms of one kind together—copper, he decided. He will make them gather copper atoms— and link them together in a sheet until the floor shone with a molecule-thick plating of copper. But no one would pay to hire a bioengineer who would not splice even a single DNA strand, and so after a week he was let go. He apprenticed himself to a spaceship pilot, but he just flew his ship in great lazy swirls around the sky. The businessmen who were to be ferried to the seven moons refused to pay him, and so after a week he was let go. And thus it was, when he had used up all his prospects, and no one in the city would take him on as an apprentice, he sat in the park. He sat by the river of floating flowers, singing nonsense songs to himself and giving names to each of the clouds that passed in the sky. He was braiding together great keel blossoms to make kites, and releasing them one by one to drift in the sky when he saw a girl watching him. After a while he saw one of his blossom kites float through her, and he knew she was a projection. Ah, he thought, if she didn't eat and didn't need to pay to enter an entertainment, it would cost nothing to take her out. She was the perfect girlfriend for him. "'Will you be my girlfriend?' he asked. "'Certainly,' she answered. As they talked together, he discovered that she had a dowry of ten trillion pretty rocks from her grandfather, but until the day she married, she told him, her stepfather controlled it, and she could not spend any of it, not even a single rock, except for what her stepfather allowed. Her stepfather was crafty, and did not want her to wed and take away his fortune. He had locked her away in a titanium crystal castle, and the robots who controlled it would only let in the man who will marry her. Her stepfather could not forbid her to marry outright, but he had sworn an oath. "'She will marry a man who has never been born, who is wearing a cloak that has never been worn, whose shadow is silver and nothing of gold, who can sleep in a fire and never get cold,' the girl, whose name was Fovis quoted to him, "'and that is the only way I shall marry.' That, Tycho's observed, as he knotted together the stems of a hundred keel blossoms into a great braid in the shape of a Mobius strip, doesn't make any sense at all. No, she said sadly. I will never marry, but he can't prevent me from projecting. Yet I myself was never born, he thought to himself. I was grown from a seed like all of the sons of farmers he knew, and he wondered at the silly ways of the city people who had never heard of growing a child from a seed, like any sensible farmer would. "'Can you not weave me a cloak that has never been worn?' he asked her. "'Indeed,' she said. "'I will instruct my robots to weave a cloak, but if you wear it, it has been worn, surely you know that.' "'Leave that to me,' he said. And so he made an appointment to come to marry the girl, and on the appointed day he arrived at the Titanium Crystal Castle, and presented himself. "'My stepdaughter is very beautiful,' the stepfather told him, "'and I love her very much. She is so beautiful that she can only marry a man who has never been born, and so you must leave and go away, for you cannot marry her.' "'But I myself was never born,' Tychos observed." I was grown from a seed, and here are my identity papers to show it. And, indeed, when he showed the sheet of molecule-thin polyply that was his identity papers, the word born on the sheet of polyply was followed by a simple No. The stepfather's face darkened as he saw this, and Tycho's thought that his face was like a storm cloud. But the stepfather merely said, My stepdaughter is very delicate, and I love her very much. Because she is so delicate, she must only marry a man who wears a cloak that has never been worn, and so you must leave and go away, for you can never marry her. But I myself am wearing a cloak that has never been worn, Tychus observed, for it was woven by your daughter's robots this very morning, and you can verify that, if you like, by asking one of them. But the stepfather only smiled wickedly and said, You are yourself wearing it, so how can you say it has never been worn? This? Tycho asked, and passed his hand through it. This is only a projection. The cloak itself is in your daughter's room, and has surely never been worn. The stepfather's face darkened further as he saw that he had been tricked, and Tycho's thought that his face was like a storm cloud that is all swollen up with lightning, ready to burst into electrical fury. But the stepfather only said— My stepdaughter is very intelligent, and I love her very much. Because she is so intelligent, she must only marry a man who has shadow of silver and nothing of gold. And so you must leave and go away, for you cannot marry her. But at this Tycho said nothing at all, only gestured with his hand down at the floor. And the stepfather looked down, and with great surprise noticed that Tycho's shadow, in fact, reflected with a silvery sheen. The stepfather brought out a light and moved it from side to side, but to whichever side he moved, the silvery sheen appeared on the opposite side. A shadow of silver. "'Robot!' he called out, and a robot appeared at his side. "'Robot! What color is that?' he said, and pointed at the shadow. "'Master, that color is silver,' the robot answered, and Tycho smiled. Tycho's smile was a smile of relief for robots are very literal, and the robot answered the question that was asked. Had the stepfather asked what the shadow was made of, the robot would surely have answered aluminum. He had tried to instruct the handful of micro-robots that he had spread behind him to gather silver atoms, but there were not enough silver atoms in the molecules of the ground, and instead he had to settle for telling them to gather aluminum atoms, which were also shiny and silver. But the stepfather called his robots together, and had them go into his vast treasury and fetch gold dust by the handful. The stepfather's robots sprinkled gold dust on the shadow. But as fast as they sprinkled gold dust, the micro-robots, which Tychos had borrowed from the DNA engineer before he'd left his apprenticeship, plated them over with a thin veneer of aluminum atoms, so that they shined silver and nothing of gold, and the stepfather knew that he had again been tricked. The stepfather's face darkened and Tycho's thought it was like a great storm of a gas giant ready to expand out across the planet until the whole surface was engulfed in turbulence. But the stepfather only said, My stepdaughter is very rich, and I love her very much. Because she is so rich, she will only marry a man who can sleep in a fire and never get cold. So you must leave and go away, for you can never marry her. But Tycho's only laughed and said, Why— "'Certainly I can do that. And so indeed can any man, for if one sleeps in a fire surely he will get hot and not cold. And so, sir, please step aside, for I wish to go inside to marry your stepdaughter, and you are in my way.' But the stepfather only smiled now, a wicked and triumphant smile, and he said softly, "'No, Sir Trickster, clever you are, but indeed you may not pass.' For you may say you can sleep in a fire, but indeed I will not credit your boasting until I see it myself. Come back, sir, in seven days. I will make you a fire, and you will sleep in the fire I have made myself, with none of your trickery, and when I have seen that, then you will marry my stepdaughter. But until then, you must go away and not come back. I will go away, said Tychos, and not come back for seven days. And when he had gone away and sat in the park by the river of drifting blossoms, the projection of his girlfriend came to him and said sadly, Oh, Tycho's, how will you meet the challenge of my stepfather? And Tycho's had no answer. He had expected to pass based on clever words and brazen courage. But he had never really had a plan. Nor for all that he racked his brains for ideas could he think of one but then he had seven days, and he was, after all, a very clever lad. Surely he would think of something. And indeed, the next day, as he slept in the shade of the tiel-trees in the park—it was necessary to sleep in the shade, because the seven moons beamed down light in a wonderful, but not at all restful, array of colors—a most remarkable thing happened to him. The old stepfather came up to him— It took him a moment to realize that this, too, was a projection, and not the real man. But still it surprised him. Sir Trickster, said the projection of the stepfather, you are a cheat, and a thief, and I wish you to have nothing to do with my stepdaughter. I will offer you a thousand pretty rocks, and with those pretty rocks you may go as you please, wherever you like, as long as you never again come back to ask for the hand of my stepdaughter in marriage. This is very interesting, thought Tycho's, very interesting indeed. But all he said was, I think not. And the next day the same projection came to him, and said the same thing, but this time offered him two thousand pretty rocks. And again Tycho's thought, this is very interesting, but replied only, I think not. Each day of the seven the stepfather offered a higher price, and each day Tycho thought, this is very interesting, but replied only, I think not. For this was the thought which Tychos found most interesting. Why would the stepfather offer him a bribe to give up a suit that he could not win? And so he sat in contemplation, braiding his flower kites and planning, On the seventh day the very image of Tycho's showed up at the castle of Titanium, all resplendent in the finest of feathers and braided spider silk, and the stepfather, surrounded by his robots, did not seem surprised to see him. But Tycho said only, I am here to claim the hand of your stepdaughter in marriage, for she is very beautiful and I love her. The stepfather said, Well, indeed, but I do not believe that you are here at all. Turning to the robot on his left side, he said, "'Robot!' And the robot aimed a counter-projection projector and turned it on. With that, Tycho's vanished, for, of course, it was only a projection, and the stepfather said loudly so all the robots could hear, "'Since the suitor has not shown up, he has forfeited the challenge and shall not marry my stepdaughter!' But Tychos stepped out from behind one of the robots and said, "'Not so, for here I am.' He was no longer so resplendent, for he could afford only the projection of finery, but now only dressed in an ordinary working-class cloak, such as a heart-farmer's son might wear, and he thought to himself it was a pity that the projection trick would not fool him twice. "'Well, indeed, then,' the stepfather said. "'I have here a fire, and I will very much enjoy watching you sleep in it.' And he turned to the robot on his right side and said, "'Robot!' and the robot opened a door." Through the door was a room, and inside the room was a nuclear furnace, with a door just large enough for a man to crawl through. Tychos noted with some interest, for he had once been a spaceship pilot's apprentice and knew what the engine for a spaceship looked like, that the inside of the chamber would be at an even, cheerful heat of one million degrees. "'I apologize,' Tycho said. "'But I have brought with me a dictionary.' And he rubbed the activation of the dictionary and murmured to it, "'Fire!' At his word, the dictionary said in its clear, cool voice, "'Fire is a form of combustion, "'releasing heat by the combination of a fuel with oxygen.' "'This chamber of yours is certainly a fine engine,' Tycho said. "'But it is not a fire. "'Shall I call a magistrate, "'and shall we see if he too has a dictionary?' "'Very well, Sir Trickster,' said the stepfather. "'There is no need for a magistrate.' He bid the robot close the door, but at the same time gestured another robot to open a different door. Through this door there was a chamber, and in the chamber was a very large pile of wood. The robot entered and set the wood to burning. I believe even your dictionary will accept this as a fire. Indeed, this is a fire, Tycho said, and walked into the room, swirling his cloak. One moment first, Sir Trickster, the stepfather said with your pardon. And with a word from the stepfather, two robots stepped to him and sprayed him with a light mist, one spraying his left side, one his right. It appears that your skin had been infested with a swarm of micro-robots, the stepfather said. Tychus was taken aback, for indeed he had his micro-robots with him, several trillion of them or so. He did not know exactly, for he was too lazy to count them all and he had carefully instructed each of them in how to turn infrared photons away from his skin. For, of course, heat is nothing except infrared photons. And if the robots caught each photon by its tail and turned it around to run the other direction, well then, well indeed. But the mist had set the micro-robots into sleep mode, and it would take him many hours to reboot each of them. But Tycho's had one more trick to play, and this he did. He had a few of his robots left, this time just very simple and stupid ones, and they sprayed water into the fire, just enough to put it out. He then pulled a sack from his cloak, and from the sack he poured iron dust into the empty fireplace, and then stepped in it and went to sleep in the dust. His laziness was indeed famous, but yet he had this one skill, to go to sleep anywhere and at any time. After some time sleeping, he yawned and stretched and rose, saying, I'm not cold at all. I win. I slept in a fire, and I'm not cold. You have to sleep in the fire while it's burning, said the stepfather. Really? said Tychos, wide-eyed as if this had never occurred to him. Who says? I say this, and in this castle my word is law, said the stepfather. Well, fine enough, Tychos said. He produced his dictionary again. A fire is combustion, he said. Even as I was sleeping, the iron was slowly rusting, and rust, of course, is nothing but oxidation, or as we call it, combustion. "'But it is not hot,' said the stepfather, scowling. "'And who is it who says that fire has to be hot?' "'I do.' "'And I don't,' said Tychos. "'Here is a dictionary. I win. I claim my prize, and if you do not agree, I shall call a magistrate.' "'No, not a magistrate,' the stepfather said. I will concede to you half of my stepdaughter's wealth. Do not call a magistrate, and we shall both be rich. Why is he afraid of magistrates? Tekos asked himself, and with that thought he called one. The magistrate robot arrived. Your dictionary, sir, the magistrate said to him, is evidently quite faulty. I have consulted the archive of dictionaries, and the compact— "'although low-cost model you own should tell you "'fire is a form of combustion resulting in visible flames.' "'Hmph,' said the stepfather. "'As I said.' "'And who are you?' the magistrate asked. "'I,' stated the stepfather, "'am the legal guardian of this girl, Phoebus "'and the trustee of her fortune and of her person.' "'No,' said the magistrate. "'You are not.' you are a projection of a recording of a certain phineas natorzond a sapient personage whose existence has been discontinued seventeen years seven months three weeks two days eleven hours and thirteen seconds before this moment a projection cannot be a guardian nor a trustee of a sapient person But this is my stepdaughter, and I love her very much, the projection of the former sapient personage known once as Phineas Natorzand said. And if I am not to guard her and be the trustee of her fortune and her person, then who is to protect her from fortune-hunters and from the evils of the world? She is a sapient personage, the magistrate said. If she wishes to be guarded, she must see to it herself. And with that the magistrate robot turned the projection off. After a while, when the magistrate had left, and the robots that the stepfather, or his projection, had brought to guard the titanium crystal castle showed themselves to be unresponsive, Tychos said, Phobos, my love, your stepfather is no longer in our way, and so we may marry. And the projection of Phobos came down and said, "Tycho, you are charming and amusing and clever, but only a foolish girl would marry such a lazy rogue and schemer and such a foolish girl certainly would come to no good end. Tycho's contemplated this. "'What will you do?' he asked. "'I have been here in this titanium castle for long enough. I will be off on my own adventures.' And as her parting words to him, she added, "'But thank you for dealing with my stepfather.' And with that she was gone. The robots left behind began to disassemble the titanium crystal castle. And in very little more than no time at all, it too was gone. And so, Tychos thought, here I am, and left no better than I was. But then again, no worse, he observed, and went forth to seek his fortune.
3: I wouldn't call Tychos lazy, per se, more distracted by flights of fancy. Sure, he couldn't hold down an apprenticeship for more than a week, but when it came to pursuing his love, he showed himself to be extremely industrious. And in the end, I have to imagine he'll be just as industrious with his next pursuit. Don't you? Speaking of pursuit, our next story is another one about pursuing one's love. It's called Courting the Lady Scythe by Richard Parks. Mr. Parks has been writing and publishing science fiction and fantasy longer than he cares to remember. His work has appeared in Asimov's Realms of Fantasy, Lady Churchill's Rosebud Wristlet, and several years' bests. The third book in his Yamada Monagatari series, The War God's Son, is due out in October 2015 from Prime Books. He blogs at Den of Ego and Iniquity, Annex No. 3, also known as RichardParks.com. reading it for us is the inimitable Graham Dunlop. Graham is a regular on the District of Wonders and we're pleased to have him read this for us. If you don't already know, Graham is a software solution architect and voice actor living in Melbourne, Australia. He is the co-editor of the fantasy podcast Podcastle and he used to host the YA podcast Cast of Wonders. You can find him on Google Plus and he occasionally tweets as Hibitza on Twitter. And now it's time for Courting the Lady Scythe by Richard Parks.
1: Jasser, son of Noban, was a handsome young man of limited ambition, which was to say he had only one to woo and win the girl called Lady Scythe. It was a frustrating ambition, to say the very least. It was noon on Culling Day, and the crowd along the Aversan Way was barely a crowd at all by the standards of the city. Most citizens kept off the streets of Thornell during this time if they could. Those who didn't were either the unfortunates who had friends and relatives given to Lady Scythe, or the unfortunates with business that could not be delayed, or the triply unfortunate, with lives so wretched they enjoyed the spectacle of any sorrow they did not share. Whatever their reasons, they made way quickly for the Watchers, the traditional guardians of the Emperor's justice. Jassa sat in a niche high up on the remnants of an ancient wall along the equally ancient street. Hardly anyone remembered why the Avrasan Way had been named for a purely mythical creature, Or why there'd once been a massive wall running alongside it. Jasser didn't know, any more than he knew the tale of how Lady Scythe's family had become the hereditary executioners of the Emperor's pleasure in Thornall. Nor did Jasser care. All that mattered was that Lady Scythe, whose proper name, rumour had it, was Aseraphel, had outlived her father to become the sole descendant of her noble house. All its rights and burdens now fell to her, and to-day that meant he'd get to see her. Jassa sighed a lover's sigh, and the thought returned like a revenant in a particularly stubborn haunting. If only I could speak to her! It was not possible. The only time a seraphel left her family's holdings was on culling day, And, by ancient decree, only representatives of the Emperor himself could approach her then. All others risked instant death. It was for her own protection, Jassa realised, but it certainly did complicate matters. As for appearing at the lady's door to present his suit, well, that was unthinkable. Which is not to say Jassa didn't try it. The doorkeeper had looked Jassa up and down, made the only judgment possible, and sent him away. Now he sat and waited, just to see her. It was all he could do. "'Make way!' shouted a watcher, but his command wasn't really needed. The street was almost clear now. Most people left had moved off the road and now ringed the ancient common. The watchers took up their positions at the four corners, gleaming in steel and bronze. Then came the device pulled by a matched team of black geldings along the Averson Way, and then into the centre of the common by the monumental statue of Somna, the Dreamer. Jasser didn't have his blacksmith's father's genius for iron and steel, but he had a fair eye for the practical applications of metalwork. The device consisted of a platform raised to about shoulder height, with a smooth steel framework mounted just beneath a circular opening in the centre. The mechanism itself was spring-loaded, though most of the actual working parts were hidden inside the platform itself. The mechanism was armed by a crank mounted on top of the platform near the driver. The victim placed his head within the metal frame underneath the opening, and when the mechanism was triggered, the unfortunate's neck would be at once stretched to its full length and then neatly severed at the base by a hidden blade. Painless, or at least so quick that it probably didn't matter. Not that anyone had been able to complain. Not as clumsy as an axe, nor requiring the skill of a swordsman. Consistent, practical. The same for all who suffered the Emperor's justice at Thornhill, high or low-born alike. The one thing you could say about a machine that you could say about almost nothing else, it was fair. The condemned arrived first three today, two young and one old. That was two more than usual. The troubles in the coastal province at Darsa had raised the level of death across the entire empire. All of the condemned had been stripped to their breeks, their arms bound behind them. They were paraded through the crowd by a contingent of four more watchers who brought them to the base of the device and left them there, then took up their positions about the execution machine. The prisoners stood blinking in the sunlight, pale and frightened to a man. But they did not try to run. There was nowhere to go. Jess's breath caught in his throat. Lady Scythe. She arrived riding a bone-white stallion. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find
2: the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewellery from Blue Nile.
1: one nod to tradition. Jasser was old enough to remember her father making his entrance in a costume that matched the color of his mount, bearing a scythe of polished silver, and wearing a death's-head mask and a crown of thornwood. None of this for Lady Scythe. Her hair was red gold and unbound. She was dressed in a plain flowing skirt and a laced bodice. A less discerning eye could have mistaken her for a barmaid if it wasn't for the chain of gold about her neck and the fine leather boots and gilt spurs she wore as well. She could make her work more of a spectacle as her father did. I wonder why she does not. Such trappings weren't required, but when he thought of it, Jasser could see their value. Any ruler would take heads when the need arose. Do it too often, even at need, "'and discontent could follow. "'Wrap such in enough legal form, "'plus a little mystery and ritual, "'and your subjects could almost forget "'that the real point of this show "'was to end the lives of three men. "'But when Lady Scythe was at work, "'there was no question of why "'the three wretches in question were present. "'She drew rein on the common "'and said in a clear sweet voice, "'The Emperor has commanded. "'All will obey.' No one else spoke or made any more noise than a body must. The occasional cough, or a shifting of feet, or here and there muted sobs. The three condemned men turned to face her as she climbed down from her mount. A watcher took the reins. A seraphel's face was unreadable. She did not speak again. She walked briskly to the side of the machine and removed a small cloth that covered the trigger. A watcher gave the command, "'Set!' The driver turned the crank until it could turn no more. Lady Scythe nodded at a watcher, and he led the first young man to the harness. The condemned man placed his head into the harness. The harness itself was mounted in such a way that the condemned looked full into the eyes of his executioner. "'Will it happen?' It did, just as the mystery had occurred with all other executions he had seen his love perform. Just before she pulled the lever, Lady Scythe said something. Jassa did not hear. He could only see her lips move. He wondered if anyone did hear, except the condemned. Jassa was too far away to be sure, but he could almost swear that the man looked, well, astonished. Then Lady Scythe pulled the lever, and the man's headless torso fell on the green. The body twitched once and was still. There was a low moan from the crowd. A young girl fell into the arms of an older woman, who stared with silent grief at the dead man. "'Set!' Again the preparation was made, again the younger man was taken first, as was the custom.' Lady Scythe's Whisper, and then the second man's body fell alongside the first. Set? The old man had stood perfectly still all this time, but when the watcher came for him he did not move. The watcher tugged at his arm and the old man pulled away. He stared at the machine, his eyes wild, and he would not take a step farther. The watcher motioned to two of his comrades and they hurried forward, grabbing the old man from either side. "'No, I'm not ready!' "'Jasser shook his head. "'Do not resist, old man. "'It will only mean more pain for you "'and might cause my lady grief.' "'The old man didn't seem to consider Lady Scythe's feelings. "'He was still attached to life and meant to stay that way. "'He struggled with more and more desperation "'as the guards pulled him closer and closer to death. "'He almost broke free.' "'and one guard raised a mailed fist over the poor man's head. "'Stop!' "'The fist halted in mid-strike. "'Even the condemned man ceased struggling. "'He watched with the others as Lady Scythe walked up to him "'and held out her slim hand. "'The watchers glanced at each other, then at her, "'and they let go of the old man and stepped back. "'The old man looked confused.' He stood unmoving for a moment, then he took her hand and she stood on tiptoe to whisper something in his ear. He drew himself up to his full height. For a moment the years seemed to fall away and Jasser could imagine what he must have been like once. The old man smiled then and let the girl lead him very slowly to the machine. In a moment he was in the harness, stoic and patient as stone. In another moment he was dead. Lady Scythe climbed the steps to the top of the machine, and the driver bowed low. She reached down, and one after another lifted the severed heads and held them high for the crowd to see. Then all was done. She climbed down and reclaimed her mount, and soon she had disappeared back down the Aversan Way with her execution machine and the watchers following in her wake. It was only then that the lamentations began, as the relatives and lovers and friends came to claim the bodies. "'I want what I can never have. It's foolish.' Jasser found himself wandering down the Aversen Way in the opposite direction from his love, out toward the ruins of the city walls, out toward the Westland Gate. He was thinking, what little could be called thinking amidst the brooding, that he would take a long walk in the countryside to clear his head and his mood. It had been quite some time since Jasser had passed this way. He had quite forgotten about the storytellers. No one knew for how long the men and women who called themselves storytellers had been meeting by the Wesleyan Gate. Idlers they were called by many, beggars by those who did not know them. In the late afternoon they would leave their homes and shops and forges, and sit in groups on the grass by the ruined stone arch, and tell stories. They did not ask for money. They did not ask for anything except time and attention. Needless to say, such were not in abundance. When listeners were scarce, as they often were, the storytellers would form in circles and tell stories to each other. They were not necessarily the kindest of listeners. You call that a tale, Lata? An older man looked with disdain upon a young girl, while the others of their circle, men and women, young and old, watched and smiled. "'I serve Somna as best I can, Tobus,' the young girl spread her hands in supplication. There was a twinkle in her eye, and she showed no signs of anger. "'You serve the goddess's aspect of bringer of sleep and ease,' returned the man called Tobus, "'a worthy goal, but personally I prefer my listeners to be awake.' When was the last time you had a listener, Tobus?' Lata asked sweetly. Laughter all around. Tobus looked outraged, but it was clear that none of them meant a word. Liars of a sort. Jasser started to walk by. I have a listener now, friends, Tobus said. He looked right at Jasser. Hello, young man. Have a seat. Jasser blinked. Um no, thank you. I was just out for a walk. "'But you were listening, at least for a bit,' he smiled at Jessa. "'So long as you're here, I'd like you to help me "'settle the difference I'm having with this talentless lot,' "'he indicated the circle with a wave of his hand.
3: "'They
1: say that no one appreciates stories any more. "'What say you?' "'Well, I used to,' Jessa answered frankly. "'It's been some time.' "'And why did you stop?' "'Too busy, too mature, too much involved with the day-to-day burden of living your life. "'All of that,' Jessa said, "'and the fact that they were almost never true.' "'They are almost always true,' Tobus corrected. "'They just may not have actually happened. "'But there are true stories. "'If you would hear a story, you would rather it be a factual one. Of course. Hmm. Then let me grant your wish. Sit down. Maybe because he really had nothing better to do, or maybe because there was no good reason not to, Jassa sat down. May I choose the story then, he asked. He was feeling a little mischievous himself. Tobus nodded, and Jassa went on. I want to know how the Averson Way got its name. Well, then... If the story will come to me, then I will tell it, Tobus said, and Jassa just smiled. Tobus returned the smile. What troubles you, friend, the fact that no one alive knows that particular story? Jassa nodded, and the girl shook her head. You're wrong. Somna does. And does Somna speak to the storytellers? Jassa asked. Somna speaks to all, Tobus said. "'but sometimes she speaks most clearly through us. "'Now be silent for a moment. "'I must see if there is a story for this young man.' "'Tobus closed his eyes while the murmur of voices from his circle quieted. "'Jassa watched, noting that Tobus's lips were moving. "'Doubtless practising the first lie, "'Jassa was ashamed of the thought from the moment it was born, "'for it was clear that Tobus wasn't trying on words for effect.' He was praying. The other members of the circle, eyes closed, heads down, were doing the same. Jassa didn't move for several long moments from pure astonishment, and by the time it occurred to him to try and slip away, it was too late. Tobas opened his eyes. "'There is a story for you, young sir. "'A short one, but no less a thing for all that.' Jassa licked his lips suddenly dry. "'I would like to hear it.' Tobus nodded. "'It was the dawn of the Third Age,' he said, in a tone subtly different from his normal speech. "'At this time men and the firstborn of Somna, the special ones that we call Aversa, were still sharing the world, although uneasily.' Our ancestors' hate and fear of the aversa had already begun to show itself, but together one of the first-born and those who are distant fathers raised the stones that were to become Thornall. Why? asked Lata. Because the aversa knew that harmony is pleasing to Somna, Tobus replied. She sought to serve. Our ancestors were content to let her. "'Why?' asked an old man across the circle. "'Because men knew that the powers of the Aversa would make their work go more quickly,' Toba said. "'Then, as now, they sought their advantage.' Jassa could see the stony expressions of the others in the circle, and knew that whatever had touched that one storyteller had grasped them all. He spoke carefully. Why did our people hate and fear the aversa? Because every one of them had more power than all of our distant fathers combined. Because there was nothing of them that was part of our fathers, save for Somna, who created both. While Somna dreams, she creates our world. The aversa share a bit of that sleep, as well as the dream. Any one of them could remake the world up to a point and no one of our fathers knew what that point might be uncertainty breeds fear like cattle what happened the walls were finished the temple of somna was finished our distant fathers tried to slay the aversa as soon as this was done they failed With a word, she broke the temple, and then walked out of the city, along the path still called the Aversan Way, through the Westland Gate. When she stood beneath it, the walls fell, all except the Westland Gate, where we gather to this very day. Where did the Aversa go? To Loga's well, at the foot of the Gralat Mountains, which some call Gahan's Spine, Tobus shook himself, and his features relaxed. The others in the circle followed him as if on cue. Perhaps it was planned that way. Jassa did not think so. Did I go too far? Tobus asked the others. He seemed to have forgotten about Jassa. The lad's question was unforeseen and ill-timed, said the old man who had spoken before. But if you were not meant to speak the answer, it would not have been spoken.' "'You're a fatalist goss,' said another. "'I think it was a mistake.' "'It doesn't matter. It's done,' Lata said. "'What's done?' Jasser demanded. Tobus shrugged. "'If you don't know, then perhaps that's for the best. "'Thank you for listening.' The circle broke apart story storytellers went off alone in ones and twos, and all in silence. After a while, Jasser left too, with the rather strange feeling that, as he passed beneath the Westland Gate, he was leaving a temple. Jasser did not go very far in his walk outside the city walls. He soon passed through the Westland Gate, now deserted, and made his way home. There was no one there to greet him, had not been, since his father's death the month before. The smithy attached to the building was locked tight and shuttered, the forge cold. Jasser gathered what he thought he would need, and in the morning he left the city. As he passed the Wesleyan gate, Jasser paused for a moment and smiled. "'I need a miracle to win, Lady Scythe, if there's any truth at all in what the storyteller said.' Now I know where to find one. It's not as if he had anything to lose. The Aversa laughed until Jassa was afraid the roof of the cave would come crashing down on both of them. She finally wiped tears from her eyes and grinned at Jassa. She had a lot of teeth. Sharp, too, he thought. They still tell that story in Thornel. Such a paradox that men's lives should be so short and their memories so long. For all that, they never seem to learn much from either. Then it's true, he asked. The aversa shrugged. Truth is a matter of interpretation. If the storytellers failed to mention that, I will be amazed. Did it actually happen? More or less, Jassa had followed the storyteller's directions and walked for two days till he came to the foothills of Gahan's Spine. He followed the only road, more of a goat path, and came to a freshwater spring near the end of a narrow box canyon. The cave was just a little farther in. He found the Aversa sitting on a chair of stone about ten yards from the entrance, at a place where the entrance shaft opened into a high-echoing chamber, For a creature of myth and legend, she was surprisingly easy to find and to recognize. She was slim and elegant, but her hair was white, and the beautiful proportions of her face were nonetheless covered with skin almost translucent with age, marked with a fine network of lines almost as if she had been woven of spider silk. Her eyes were larger than any human woman's, and the color of amber. She almost appeared to be waiting for him. It's true, then? You can reshape Somnus' dreams? We can make small changes in the world, if that's what you mean. Trifles, and at very high cost. I'm not a wealthy man, but I have some property to sell. The Aversa almost burst out laughing again. But she confined it to a brief chuckle, though it took obvious effort. She shook her head. Let me show you something, Jasser of Thornall. The world changed. They weren't in a cave now. They stood in a perfumed garden at the base of a mountain that looked a little like the one where the Aversa made her home now. A waterfall cast rainbows into the air as it fell into a marble basin. Statues of exquisite artistry were set into niches carved in the living stone in places Jassa remembered seeing as eroded crumbling rock just a few minutes before. The Aversa sat down on a white stone bench and patted the seat beside her. Jess sat down, numbly. How do you like my home? the Aversa asked. It's... lovely. Yes, she sighed deeply. It's also gone. They were back in the cave. The Aversa wasn't smiling now. Once, all my people lived like that. But there never were very many of us, nor did living in peace with your kind work out very well. They'd have us greater demons than Gahan himself when the mood struck them, use us when they could, kill us or drive us away when they could not, until what few of us are left hang on in the empty places that no one else has found a use for. With your power, why did you allow this to happen? The aversus smiled again ruefully. Our power is in the reshaping of Somna's dream, the dream that is the world. But it is still Somna's dream, not ours. Do you know what happens when someone reshapes the dream in a way she does not like? Jassa shook his head, trying not to lose himself in her amber eyes. Beaversa continued. It disturbs the goddess's sleep. Do it often enough and brutally enough. And she wakes. The world ends. "'Do you think the Aversa wanted to do what the demon Gahan, with all his tricks, has so far failed to accomplish? "'Your folk have their place in Somna's dream, or they wouldn't be there. "'I think ours will soon go away entirely.' "'But you are beloved of Somna, first of all the races of the dream!' "'The Aversa looked around at the bare stone walls. "'As I said, the cost is high.' Only we pay it, Jasser. You do not. You choose your way, and that has its own consequences which have nothing to do with me. Now then, do you still want me to help you? Jasser took a deep breath. Yes. You're a fool, but I already knew that. This concerns Lady aseraphel of Thornell, yes? Jasser blinked. How do you know that? I can always tell when the storytellers have been at work and whom they've touched. The dreams told me the rest. Call it a whim, but I will help you. What do you want? If you've seen my dreams, you should already know. The aversa smiled again. Clever boy. Dreams at once reveal and obscure. It's true I know what you want. Do you? Jess shrugged. I want Lady Scythe to love me. "'I want to have her lips on my brow. "'I want her to look into my eyes with such devotion "'that in that instant she is mine, and only mine.' "'The Aversa nodded. "'So I expected. "'Hand me that stone at your feet.' "'Jassa bent down and picked up a piece of dull limestone, "'little more than a pebble. "'He handed it to the Aversa, "'and in a moment she handed it back to him, "'only now it wasn't a stone.' What she gave him was a small bronze medallion on a leather thong. Wear this, she said. When you return to Thornall, show it to the watcher at the gate. You will get your wish. Or, Jassa was already tying the cord around his neck, or? Or, you can toss it in the nearest river, or simply drop it here and now go home, take up your father's profession or some other. "'and build a life for yourself without Lady Scythe. "'That would be my advice if you'd asked for it. "'I can't do that. I love her.' "'The nodded, and she looked even older than she had before, "'older and infinitely more weary. "'I know,' she said. "'On the long walk back to Thornall, Jasser took a little time to think. He wondered if it were really possible to do as the Versa had advised. He would always be a poor substitute for his father at the forge. Oh, he was well trained, and Jasser was sure he could earn a decent living at the forge. But not like his father. The man worked art with his steel. Where Jasser would make a serviceable sword, no band would create a master blade, perfect in balance and form. The same for anything Jassa had attempted. What his father had went beyond experience and practice, and Jassa knew that neither one would turn him into the smith his father was. I could settle for less. Only it was a lie. There was one thing Jassa could never do. Just as with Lady Scythe, there was no one to compare to her, and no point in trying. All or nothing. If there was a middle way, he could never quite see it. Jassa looked at the medallion. It was a simple disc of bronze with a carved sigil that looked like a closed eye. He dimly recognized her as one of the ancient symbols for Somna the Dreamer. Beyond that, it meant nothing to him. He wondered what it would mean to the Watcher. He didn't have to wait long to find out. Jassa approached the gate and the Watcher on duty there. Jassa didn't show him the medallion. Jassa didn't have to. The watcher glanced at it as Jasser approached, and in an instant the man's sword was at Jasser's throat. In the name of the Emperor, I apprehend thee. In a dirty, damp cell that night, Jasso reached fitful sleep. The Aversa was waiting for him in his dreams. You betrayed me, he shouted, though no one not on the stage of dreams heard him. The Aversa shook her head. I have done something, yes, but not that. They wouldn't even tell me what the medallion means. To the Watchers, it means you are a man who helped lead the revolt against the Emperor in the city of Darsa. A revolt that is spreading. Now they will stop looking for that man for a while. We all serve Somna with what we know, and the Emperor's reign has been bad for all of the dream. "'You aren't the man they're looking for, of course. "'But the watchers believe otherwise.' "'Then I'll tell them!' she nodded. "'I suppose so.' "'They both knew it wouldn't make any difference.' "'Why?' he asked finally. "'What did I do to you?' "'You asked my help,' she said, "'and did not understand what that meant. "'That understanding is coming.' Then Jassa was left alone in a dream that was no more than a dream. In the morning he did not remember. Jassa walked with three younger men along the Aversan Way, his arms bound behind his back. In time he came into the presence of Lady Scythe. Jassa almost smiled. At least no one can deny me this much. One by one the others died. Soon it was his turn. He looked right at Lady Scythe and said, I love you. The watchers just stared. Lady Scythe's sweet face had a quizzical look, but she didn't say anything. Jasser drew himself to his full height and waited for the watchers to try and force him as they had the old man. It didn't happen. Lady Scythe stepped forward immediately and took his hand. She led him to the device. You don't understand, he said. I love you. She smiled at him. I do understand, she said. And then Jassa was in the harness. Her smile fluttered with madness. Of all those I have loved, you were the only one to speak first of love to me. Thank you. Lady Scythe took her place by the lever, and then Jassa saw her lips move, as they always did. Only now he was close enough to hear. Now he was close enough to see the look of joy and devotion in his lady's eyes, the recognition that was always there when she pulled the lever and looked into the eyes of death itself. And at that instant it was all for Jassa. I love you she said jasser wanted to laugh but he had no time when the storytellers gather at the wesland gate every now and then someone tells the story of how a lady scythe took an unclaimed head lying by the statue of Somna the dreamer and made the skull into a gilt drinking cup they would tell of how she would smile to herself "'as her lips brushed its cold brow, and she gazed into its empty eyes. "'No one really knew if this actually occurred, "'but like any good story it grew enough in the telling that, in time, "'more than one good meaning found haven in the shade of it. "'Such is the version in which, a few years later, "'with both the empire and the need for her services in decline,' Lady Scythe married the governor of the frontier province of Lyrsa, and moved away from Thornall. Her clothes, her gold, and the skull cup were all she took from the city. The execution machine fell to rot and rust beneath the statue of Somna the Dreamer, who, with closed eyes, saw all.
3: Well, what more can be said of that? Two rather different stories, but sharing a common theme. I hope you've enjoyed our offering this week. Please remember that Far-Fetched Fables operates under a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivatives 3.0 license, which means you can download the content and share it all you like. But don't change it or sell it. And be sure to give credit where credit is due. All other copyright remains that of the author's. If you like what you hear at Far-Fetched Fables, please consider making a donation to the District of Wonders. The buttons are on the website. If you'd like to share your thoughts on this or any of our stories, you can also leave your comments on our website. I hope you have a good week, whether or not you are busy pursuing a goal. If you are, good luck. If you're not, how about another beverage? Bye now.